Well, hello, everyone, and welcome again to A Matter of Faith, a Presby podcast, the podcast where we respond to your questions of faith, justice, and church life. Don't forget to write in and send us your question, because... Because if it matters to you, it matters to us, and it just might be a matter of faith. Hello, everybody. Hey, Simon. How are you? I'm good, Lee. I hope you're doing well. And to our audience, we hope that you are doing well. But if you don't care how we're doing or about any introductory conversation, that's okay. You can skip to our guest segment by checking out the timestamp in the show notes. But we hope you'll want to stick around. Lee, I have some exciting news for you. Oh, gosh. Is this a surprise? Do I know? It snowed. That was all. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Sometimes, well, more often than not, I don't really like surprises. So I was glad it wasn't like a a profound announcement in a way. Yeah, it's been weirdly warm here in South Carolina. So my body doesn't know what to do. I think it's just kind of in this weird thing. And then I'm going to Chicago tomorrow and it's supposed to be very, very cold. It's supposed to snow a lot on Sunday. So I don't know how I'll be. Yeah, but I'm excited for Chicago because they do Christmas really well there. That's true. They do. So I'm excited about the decorations. Yeah. And I guess I should also say for my area of Idaho that I'm excited it snowed, but it also has melted already. And so I'm waiting for that snow that comes, which will stick around so that we can go skiing. I'm waiting for it. Yeah. Well, I have, I'm not a good skier. I like snow when it first falls. And then, you know, growing up in the South, we never knew what to do with snow. And so it just kind of shut everything down. And it was never a good experience for me. I did like to see it fall, though. And before it got gross, you know, like in D.C., it gets gross. Yeah. Same thing in New York. It's nasty. It's pretty for the first like day, maybe first couple hours. And then it just turns to this brown mush. Yeah. And there's no telling what's in there. Like, I think, you know, scientific discoveries could probably be made in the snow of (laughs) cities. You know what I mean? So, yeah, but that's exciting. I do love snow. I'm excited for this holiday season just to like, I don't know. I always love Christmas lights, but I like the season for that. I'm not a big light shopper or anything else, but I do love a Christmas light. And yeah, I'm excited for it. And we're going to go to see the Home Alone house. Oh, nice. Which is one of my favorite holiday movies. Well, I expect that that is going to be Potentially a very popular tourist destination, the Home Alone house. Maybe. It looks a lot different now, but... Oh, it does. I'm going to have low expectations. That's fair. Well, speaking of expectations, we have a question about expectations around church, which reads, how do expectations we have for our own church or the church affect us when those expectations may or may not be met? It's kind of a a deep question, and I think it's really interesting because the church, like a lot of institutions, I think that we place a lot of expectations on it in terms of how it should be, how it will be, how it should be different maybe from other organizations. 
And sometimes those are met and sometimes they're not. And that can apply to both sort of a denomination as well as just your local church. And especially if you're a person who is in a more marginalized group, such as being queer or a person of color, you may have some expectations for church that this will be a place where I'm welcomed and loved. And maybe that's not always the case, depending on that particular community. So, yeah, expectations matter. Yeah. And I always tell people to not have a lot of expectations too. And this might just be me because I think a lot of us do build up things so much. So like, whether it be a really good thing or this is going to be really bad, like kind of having this, you know, overly expected of like, this is going to give me something that I've always been looking for. And maybe that's something that could happen, but I do think expectations do kind of get us in a bind sometimes because when somebody doesn't meet that expectation or when it can't, and I do think that, you know, the church is an institution and I do think institutions to a certain extent cannot meet the entirety of the expectations, even when that institution is grounded in all these things that we talk about when we talk about Christianity or like inclusive inclusivity or progressive faith. I think because institutions are institutions, they are going to disappoint us because the one thing about them or any organization really is for that organization to keep going. And especially for a company or, you know, me and someone were just talking about this the other day, like, like, Beyonce was going to show her movie in Israel and a lot of people were saying, well, that shouldn't be the case. And we should be standing with, you know, there should be, we should be kind of boycotting these things because of what Israel is doing and things like that. And I do think we also put a lot of expectations on our entertainers because they are entertainers. And I think a lot of their stuff, they are, they are a business. They are a corporation. But also, Taylor Swift did the same thing, and nobody really said anything about her. So there's a double standard there with women of color and entertainment being the voices of, you know, automatically being put as the voices to speak out against oppression when, when Beyonce does do that. And Taylor, eh, maybe not. So there's also that, too. But I think, like, the expectations we have on people have to be in some way realistic about said said entity, if that makes sense. I just think it's a lot that we put on something. And I can do this too. Like I've I have a lot of expectations for the church. And I and there are times where I'm disappointed. So I think it's a I think it's like what is the reality there too, if that if any of that made sense. But yeah. I always tell people to kind of go in with low expectations or none at all and just kind of just be open to what exactly you're going to get, really. I think also not even around things like values or issues that you may or may not expect to be maybe addressed from the pulpit. That's its own separate conversation. But also just walking in and having expectations about the way that we do music, the way we do order of worship, the way that this congregation congregation does communion versus another one. I'm not saying that 
you shouldn't have any expectations, but just be okay with when those expectations or assumptions are not met because every congregation is going to be different in terms of at the church level. And I think that would sometimes we do ourselves a disservice expecting something. And I get it. That's one reason you go to a Presbyterian church because maybe you've been to another Presbyterian church or you're a lifelong Presbyterian and you have a certain understanding about the way things are done. And that familiarity is helpful. Maybe it gives you some comfort, but it's also okay if some congregations change it up a little bit. I don't think we need to love every single thing about the church service every Sunday to still get something out of it. But that's only if we're able to manage our expectations. Similarly, I think we should stop expecting something that clearly isn't going to change to change unless we're willing to put work in to make it happen. And sometimes that's fighting a losing battle because some things or some people simply don't want to change. And I say that as a young person in an older denomination. Yeah. Yeah. And like letting that go. And that's like a grief process too. Like letting it go and letting something go that you, that you do see the potential in and you know, it could be better, but there's really only so much somebody can do without losing themselves. And I think like when you start losing who you are in the midst of trying to like, you know, change something or make something work that's just not going to work. I think that's when it becomes time to reevaluate what the expectations of yourself is. If you are, you know, sacrificing your authenticity for something that is not going to give you something back. And there's always that saying, like, I always see these things on Instagram about like, well, why are you giving love to something that's not going to love you back? What does that look like? Is the relationship with said entity transactional? Is it a mutual relationship? Like what is those, all those things about expect our expectations? So yeah, I think it's hard though, because you, because what we say as a church and you expect just kind of the bare minimum and that isn't even met, like that's hard to take. And then I think some people, especially as as younger folk, if expectations are not met or they absolutely know something's going to change, they're going to, it's going to be done. You know, like there's not going to be energy to change something that's just not going to change. And I think that's where a lot of us may find ourselves in this thing called church. I find myself in it a lot. Like what am how much energy am I going to take to put into something that I know may or may not change? And I think that that is a valid question for people. Yeah. Expectations are interesting. And folks, why don't you write in and let us know what you think about what happens when expectations for church are met or not met? Write in and let us know at faithpodcast at pcusa.org. And we hope that you have great expectations for our conversation with Nathan Sobers, a commissioned ruling elder in Kendall Presbytery and pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Soda Springs, Idaho. Nathan joins us to talk about his own faith journey, which is really a an interesting story and I think speaks a lot to just the diversity of backgrounds that people can come from and the ways that they find themselves in a faith community. So we hope you enjoy this conversation with Nathan. 
Well, joining us on the podcast today is a very special guest. We have Nathan Sobers, who is the commissioned ruling elder and Kendall Presbytery and pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Soda Springs, Idaho. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. We're so grateful you're here. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, Nathan, I'm really glad to have you on the podcast. Uh, We have a question written in, which is about people's stories relating to their faith journeys. And we wanted you to share yours with us. Okay. The question reads, we don't always get to hear people's stories about how they came to be a Christian, Presbyterian, or just their faith journey in general. Well, with that in mind, please tell us about yourself, your background, and your faith journey. Okay. First of all, I was born and raised um, in a little town outside of Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, raised LDS, oldest of four children. When I was 19, I was excommunicated from the Mormon Church for being gay. And that was a very traumatic experience for me. Uh, If you know anything about the LDS Church, it really becomes your entire life. It becomes every... it becomes everything to you, your social circle, your religious identity. I was not allowed to play with non-LDS kids growing up. I was only allowed to play with other Mormon kids. And so when I got excommunicated, I really felt that God had turned God's back on me, that I had been abandoned by God. So for about 10 years, um, I refer to them as my wilderness years, actually, um, the only time I do ever stepped foot in a church was to be a church musician. I've been a professional church organist since I was 14. And that would be the only time I would ever walk into a church because I figured if God didn't want anything to do with me, I certainly didn't want to have anything to do with God. So I played for, in those 10 years, I played for all sorts of denominations, Episcopalian, Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, even a couple of Presbyterian churches. And over those years, you know, nothing really stuck. It was just going in there on Sunday mornings, playing for a job, getting paid. And that was it. Yeah, not too long after all of that happened, um, I moved to Seattle. I was living with my then partner in Seattle. And um, so I met this guy. He was an organist. Uh, He was looking for an assistant. I figured, why not? Uh, So I applied. And they hired me. I always maintain that I'm an accidental Presbyterian because this church, predominantly African-American, inner city, small, only about 40 members. But these folks welcomed me like nobody nobody had in all those years. They, Most of those folks had come up during World War II to Seattle to work at Boeing, to work uh, at the airplane manufacturing facilities there at Boeing. They had been heavily involved in the 60s and the civil rights movement in Seattle. They had uh, invited the Black Panthers to host a breakfast program in the basement of the church. So they knew what it was like to be on the margins. And to their credit, they were able to extend their own experience and understand that my experience was very similar to theirs. So. I actually ended up being the organist there, organist choir director. There, I was there for 25 years. And in that time, about three years after I started, I felt the Holy Spirit move and I ended up joining. 
and literally I joined on a Sunday. I was I was I was brought into the congregation on a Sunday. The following Tuesday, the chair of the nominating committee, the congregation nominating committee, reached out and said, "Would you like to be a deacon?" And I thought, "Okay, sure, no problem." So for about two years, I was a deacon in that congregation. And then they asked me if I wanted to be ordained an elder. And now remember, this was in the early 90s before, um, before the prohibition on ordination had been lifted. And at that time, Seattle Presbytery was about uh, was a pretty evenly split presbytery in terms of progressive and conservative. Fifty, the votes would wind up being fifty-one percent conservative, forty-nine percent progressive. So I had a real concern about being ordained an elder because this is a, this was a congregation that had struggled in their relationship with presbytery over the years, and it had been adversarial there had been three administrative commissions go into this church from the presbytery in an effort to basically close them down so the relationship was not good when they asked me to be an elder i took a step back and i said are you sure are you sure and then i listed off all of the things that could happen to them for ordaining an openly gay man as an elder in a time when it went against the Book of Order. And I'll never forget, the woman who was chairing the nominating committee at the time, the elder that was on, that chaired that committee, put her hand up to me, and I was talking, to her, and she said, stop. Just stop. We know exactly what the risks are, but we believe that God has called you to be an elder. And how do you say no to that, right? So they ordained me an elder. I was the first openly gay elder ordained in Seattle Presbytery. So, you know, life went on. Nothing really happened. The people that were progressive in the Presbytery knew who knew about me. The conservatives did not. Until we got into the into the campaign, I guess you will, to to um pass um 10A, which was the uh, which would have lifted the ban on ordination. And I got heavily involved in that. And when it came time for the Presbytery meeting, when we we're going to have this vote, I knew that I couldn't be true to myself if I sat in that Presbytery meeting and didn't let the people know, let my colleagues know exactly who I was. So I took a step and came out on the floor of Presbytery during that debate. Interesting side note, I uh, in that same Presbytery meeting, I was up to be on a um, an ordination commission. Um, and they took the vote on the on 10A before they settled the question about who was going to be on this AC for to ordain somebody in the somebody to warden sacrament. So I came out, I was scared to death, uh, very scared. And um then the vote failed, which wasn't done, which wasn't surprising for Seattle at that time. And then they went on and unanimously elected me to this uh, ordination commission. So it was kind of an interesting dichotomy on that one. 
part of what happened though as a result of me doing the work around the 10a campaign was i was asked to come on the board of more light presbyterians at that point and i served on the board with more light for oh i guess it was about five years um three years of those as co-moderator of the board i'm still there and then we started talking then we started having the discussion about marriage whether or not um, same gender marriages would be allowed within the denomination. And I remember very distinctly, I was at church one Sunday morning doing my thing, and our exec, our, our um, associate exec, the associate executive presbyter was there uh, on a visit. And he pulled me aside after church and says, Have you ever thought about ministry? Well, not really, which wasn't exactly the truth because my mother tells a story about when I was eight years old, my friends would all be out playing and I'd be lining my sister's dolls up on the bed and preaching at them. So yes, it had been a part of my, um, it had been part of my um, thought process, but I never thought I was ever going to be able to actually make it happen. And I had all these reasons for not wanting to do it not wanting to follow God's call. And I remember Kevin telling me, the exec telling me, when marriage passes in the denomination, we're going to lose a lot of pastors. And you would be somebody who could step in and fill the gap as a commissioned ruling elder. So I thought, well, okay. So I did, I did a year of study at Whitworth University in Spokane. They have a, they have a really nice, a really good um, uh, commissioned ruling elder program. And once I completed the program, um, marriage did indeed pass, but the, but the loss of pastors didn't happen. But I was, now I was ready for commissioning. And so they found me a place where I was commissioned to be the associate pastor for adult spiritual formation at a at a suburban Seattle church. Did that for about a year. Um, at the time I was married and my husband and I broke up and I moved to Palm Springs. And um, about a year into my time in Palm Springs, I um, got asked to organize a thousand and one new worshiping community. And the principle behind the, that particular community, which still is in existence today, actually, was the idea was healing spiritual wounds. It was specific outreach to the LGBTQ community with a focus on um, helping those folks who had been hurt by the church um, be able to reconcile uh, with, with the church and to feel like they had a place in the church. So I did that for about three years, and then it was time for me to move on, and I and I um, ended up um, finding my place here in Soda Springs. Um, wanted to be closer to my family. I have family here, and uh, my sister and her husband live about 20, mi 20 minutes away from me. My parents still live down in Ogden, where I grew up, which is only about a two-hour drive. And um, I've been here now for two years as a solo pastor in this presbytery. And um, 
I get, you know, that's the, that's the kind of the nuts and bolts of it. So, um, that's obviously doesn't, doesn't provide a whole lot of detail of why, but, um, I'm open to any of your questions. Well, it's fascinating. And, you know, being a queer pastor in this church as well, it, it's always interesting where the spirit leads us. And I think this particular narrative is interesting just because of your upbringing. And if for people who don't know, we're kind of talk, we're talking about the Mormon church. If people don't know the, the acronyms and things like that, but it is very interesting that you made it back home where you are now kind of in that area. And I just wonder, you know, what is what what have you found like your space being like a, a queer person of faith in an area where I mean that this is where Simon all kind of the area Simon talks about it is a, a big Mormon population Very and much. so yeah and so I wonder about what that dynamic is like too because you have a very different perspective because that was your upbringing and I wonder what that looks like for you now because I know the ex-Mormons that I know, it is an interesting development and they've kind of found a space where they've kind of connected to people of the same, same story. So I wonder what your experience is like too. I found this position because my sister um, said, Hey, there's a Presbyterian church in Soda Springs and they're looking for a pastor. Why don't you apply? Now you understand my sister and her, her husband are staunch Mormons. But she was. She had this um, hidden agenda that she wanted to be closer to her and closer to mom and dad. So that's why she said it. Well, they the church here was just just happened to be looking for a pastor, and I figured, what do I have to lose by applying? So when we were in the interview process, I wasn't about to leave Palm Springs. All my friends, my religious community, you know, the fact that Palm Springs is. 50% gay, you know, I wasn't going to do that without all the way to come here um, and find out six months later that it wasn't going to work, right? So I came out to the search committee in like our second interview. And to their credit, you know, they were more concerned about how I would be received in the community than in the congregation. And that was, the concern was around the fact that the community that we're in, it's about 3,000 people, very relatively isolated. Um, I have to drive an hour to near Starbucks, which is a horror, but that's a whole nother story. Um, so I get what you're saying. I get it. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. I've heard some of your stuff. I mean, rural, you know, you get it. But um, they were, and like I said, 80% LDS. Um, we have... At that point, we had uh, 12 churches in town, and seven of them were LDS wards. Um, then, then the Baptist church, a Catholic church, a Lutheran church, us, and an Assembly of God church. Right. So none of none of the congregations were, except for this one, are considered to be progressive congregations by any means. They even went so far as when they decided to call me, they went so far as to write in. Um, they had a they had a standard of a ninety day termination clause in the in the covenant, 
so that you had to give 90 days either way if you wanted to terminate the relationship. For me, they shortened it down to 30 days because I found out later that they did that because if I was going to run into any issues in the community, they wanted me to be able to leave as quickly as possible. So they were really looking out for me. Coming here, I, I think one of the reasons that they wanted me to come here, that they called me to this place, was because I grew up I grew up in the in the in the region, right? I know the um in the Intermountain West, it's very much a um people will tell you what they think about you. Um there's no there's no artifice, I guess is the word I would use. There's no sense of of Oh, you're so sweet to your face, and then and then talk and then talk bad about you behind your back. It doesn't work that way here. Here, it's like you know how will you stand at all times with everybody, whether you like it or not. And I I value that again, partly because I grew up in this culture. The other piece is, and I joked about this in one of my first sermons. You know, I speak fluent Mormon, and so having somebody that can that understands what the Mormon church is about, how they approach things, um, was something that they were looking for here. Um, I'll be honest with you, my relationship with the Mormon bishops here, the Mormon leadership here, I have actually better relationships with them than I do with the Baptist pastor or the Catholic priest. The Lutheran church and the Assembly of God church have since closed. So, I have better relations with my Mormon counterparts than I do with with my other religious counterparts here. And I have a firm belief that, first of all, and I know this goes against official denomination polity, but I believe that Mormons are Christian. You know, I, I believe that. And I believe that in an environment like this, we don't have time to waste um, with 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 religious arguments. Again, we're a small town, way out in the middle of nowhere. We have to rely on each other a lot just to just for basic survival, right? And so my whole thing being here has been about ecumenicalism, working with the other religions, with the other groups in town. And how that's relating to the gay thing? Well, obviously, in a small town of 3,000, somebody finds out something like that about somebody, everybody knows. And so it's pretty common knowledge in town about who I am. But it doesn't seem to, it hasn't seemed to impact my um, ability to, to lead ministry in this place. So. I'm grateful for that. I think, I think you know, they've been willing to meet me halfway, and they see. Kind of the thing of it is, is that is that for us here, um, what unites us, the things that we have in common, are more important than than the differences, and I think that's where where they make the distinction. You know? I think what you've said about the importance of the ecumenical work is it's really vital. It's vital in a bustling metropolitan city, and it's important, maybe even more so in smaller, more isolated areas where, like you said, you only have each other to kind of rely on and you only have each other that you're going to see all the time as well. Yeah. 
Yep. So you, you kind of have to work together. Um, and something I really appreciate about your story is that you started out, like you said, with being excommunicated from the Mormon church. And then where I think it's so interesting that where you found home was in this African-American Presbyterian church in the Seattle area, because it, I can only imagine the difference that culturally that, that probably um, that, that experience probably was like, and then in that, so that, that transition, but then also you've been able to sort of journey with the denomination as the denomination has become more progressive. You mentioned 10 a, which is um, the amendment around ordination. You've all, we've also seen, the advances and pro- progress on gay marriage in the Presbyterian Church USA. And so you've really been able to see that. And I- I'm curious, as you've sort of been able to walk alongside the church as those developments have come together, um, about what kind of work you think still remains to be done in that space for our church? I, that's a great question. And one of the other things that I am doing right now at the denomination level is I'm a member of the GA Committee on Representation. And I went into that role knowing that I was coming in as the clear voice on that committee. You know, um, one of my best friends is co-moderator there, but his responsibilities are, are more, are more general, right? And, they specifically wanted me to come onto this committee to provide a clear voice when it comes to representation. And I don't think we're done with any, with the work by any means. Um, we were in Minneapolis having our fall meeting not too long ago. And one of the pieces that came up was the, was the push and pull, I guess, of the phrase, all are welcome. Every, you know, I don't know a church anywhere in this country that doesn't have that at some point, either on their church sign, in their bulletin, on their website, on their social media, claiming to be all are welcome. The issue becomes, I think, in the denomination, too, the issue becomes about how do we live into that or how, because so often that phrase, all are welcome, comes with strings, right? Comes with strings. Sure, you can come to church, you can sing in the choir, you can give your your money, but, and then you can just fill in the blank about what that but means, right? And we were talking, we were in conversation with a congregation in Minneapolis, and this came up, and um, one of the things that I mentioned was, well, does your congregation have a wedding policy? Does your congregation have a policy that explicitly welcomes same-gender marriages in your facilities? And eyebrows went up. You know, like, like oh, we had never thought about that. Having walked with the denomination through ordination and marriage, I'm very aware of the fact that there's a gap between what the rules now say are possible and the reality in many congregations, right? There's a lot of congregations that will not, there's, there's a lot of congregations that will not call an openly queer pastor 
just won't. They'll find some reason other than the clearness of the person not to call them. But the reality is it's because they don't want a gay pastor or they don't want a queer pastor or they don't want a trans pastor or, you know. And so the work becomes, to, in my mind, about changing hearts and minds. We've got the rules changed, so it's possible, but it's not going to happen unless hearts and minds are changed as well. I think that's the biggest work. I think the affinity groups have done a great job. So by the affinity groups, I'm talking about more light Presbyterians, Covenant Network, but all may freely serve, even parity, which is more regional in the in in New York City. They've all done great work in getting us to the place where the rules have been changed. Right? Where I think that um the advisory committee on LGBTQIA plus equity, which the last General Assembly approved, I think the work that that advisory committee has to do is building on the success that the affinity groups had and working to change hearts and minds. That's where I and I see I see I see the committee on representation walking hand in hand, hand in glove with the advisory committee uh, to to kind of help that process happen. Yeah, and that's the hard part. And that's what I keep telling a lot of people is that you know it's very easy well i won't say easy i don't want to dismiss any any of the work anybody has done to change anything because i know that's very hard and that work i mean there are people that i talked to that were in the i mean the front lines of this and it was very hard and a lot of them have a lot of post-traumatic stress from that and we are seeing you know what that manifests in now and what that looks like now and and i am of a different generation well just i am of you know that past when did that pass it was 20 what marriage or ordination uh ordination gosh um 13 years ago roughly. yeah like 2010 ish so yeah, i had just graduated uh college didn't have a clue, you know, I was going to be in ministry at all. I did a YAV year and, you know, and so I have benefited from the work of a lot of other queer people. Not saying it hasn't been tough. I got ordained in Tennessee. So like, oh. it hasn't been tough. It has been tough. But like, I think because of y'all who came before us and, and all these things, like for one, thank you. And then two, I do think the next step is to, you know, how are we to take what we sometimes like to check off and say, well, we done that and that looks good. But like you were saying, the reality is, and because the church doesn't necessarily have as much power as it did, I think we automatically think that that's just going to a trickle down effect, like a, like, it's like the top down economic way and we all know that just that just doesn't work <laughs> like it like all the time and so <laughs> it is i think and i know more like presbyterians are going through discernment i know a lot of covenant network every all these affinity groups are going through discernment but it is so important 
that, you know, when it comes to the realities of queer folk in this church, for one, it's so diverse. Mm-hmm. The 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 way people have have gone about that or how people have treated them, I think that's important too. Because sometimes we want to be doom and gloom about it, but there are more nuanced stories out there that I think are also really inspiring too. And I think your story speaks to this like the realities and I'm from a small town too. The realities of it is that like people don't realize how the family unit Mm -hmm. is something that is very core in small towns, no matter where you go, I think. And it could either go two ways. You either go against that family so much so that they kick you completely out or they are like, we we are family. We might not understand it. We might not get it. But you are a part of our family. And that is like, that. and my family was the same way. It took a very long time. And so I wonder, I mean, and that's just kind of the church, right? It's going to take these hard conversations of how to go deeper. But I wonder how do we also, and not just a representative type way, that's with bodies, but also how do we also go in and say, well, through a queer lens, this is how we experience theology, God. This is how people, queer folk of faith for for a long time have seen Christ and what that looks like. Those are the things that I also think can trigger because when you start messing with people's Jesuses, that's, that's the hard part too. Yeah. I don't, I, I totally agree with you. I think that one of the approaches that I've seen work is the intersectionality piece, right? Knowing that my struggle is different from my African American queer siblings. Those are important distinctions to make, right? Because while there is obviously the intersectionality um, in terms of race and sexual orientation, I do think that there has to be some, we can't just find ourselves, you know, as, as, as white cis men who happen to be gay, we can't just co-opt those experiences rather i think we are called to to walk alongside and enhance you know and, and learn from each other but that's how i believe we also teach the church by example by showing them that you know queer spirituality exists right um and perhaps there's a hierarchy or, or an order in how we approach stuff like this. Because you're right, messing with people's Jesus is is not good. I remember when somebody in one of my churches wanted to replace blonde, uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus with something that looked a little bit more like what we would have expected Jesus to look like. The uproar, the, the, the pearl-clutching, it was... It was actually, I was kind of surprised by that. I think that, you know, in terms of moving forward, where we have to be willing to do is, is do the work of intersectionality with the respect to the, to the various cultures that are involved in that. 
and at the same time turn the lens back on the church because in a lot of cases we are as queer folk we're still the last group within the denomination that where it's where it's legitimate to to go ew i don't want to have anything to do with that they don't have a right to be here so it's building the coalitions building that intersectionality and again respecting the different cultures that are involved in that and the various aspects of of that i guess the best way i would put it is when i was growing up i grew up in a very racist family uh my dad is 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 very it's very racist even to this day and when i came out i realized that if i wanted people to accept me as a gay man i needed to then turn around and show that same acceptance that same grace if you will to people that i had been taught all my life were not worthy of acceptance or grace and so i think that holds true in our relationship with the larger church because because we can point out the dichotomy or the hypocrisy of of saying you know of 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 somebody who's anti-racist and still homophobic and the actions that that are you know the 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 shine a light on on that hypocrisy or that dichotomy i guess and this because sexuality is by the church in general has just had has been labeled that it factor and i think that that is you know a conversation we don't often have in this is that sex and sexuality or like any kind of thing like that has always been labeled as gross or nasty um and abomination those types of that type of language and i think the church in general needs to talk about sex more in a more positive theological way than it has. And I do think that that is something that we struggle with too in the whole conversation is that we only accept queer folk of all demographics to a certain point. And I yeah. think that that is the, the line. You have to look a certain way. Sometimes, a lot of the time, you have to, even if you're married, that marriage also has to be a certain way that is comfortable. Like it's, it is very interesting. I remember, you know, even though I am a, a queer man, me having a partner was a lot better than me not. Yes. Because of <laughs> the promiscuity attached to queerness and gayness. Yes. Yes. And I think that's also something that even the most progressive people still don't understand. It, and even when it comes to drag, queer culture, where people think it's over-sexualized, when in reality, culture in general, specifically in the church, is hypo-sexualized. And I think that that, that <laughs> comparison is really hard, too. So I totally get like the it that has been labeled upon us. And I think that that is something that's hard to to kind of process is that when you're told you're gross all your life because of that and the church kind of perpetuates it in weird ways that's very interesting yeah yeah i I would agree with that i also think that our own internalized for many of us especially those of us queer folk who are who have chosen to remain 
within organized religion um, that there's a there's there's a level of internalized homophobia that we have to deal with because all of our lives we were taught that that our feelings were wrong, our our desires were wrong, they were sinful. They were more than just sinful. They were going to get us sent to hell, you yeah. know. Uh, and so, overcoming that internalized homophobia and internalized, um, yeah, I can't think of a better word than homophobia. It was it's internalized homophobia, brought up, brought on by by our by many of us who were brought up in in very conservative uh, religious um, religious areas or or um cultures so that's another piece of it right because the um how do we how do we with confidence engage the larger church about these issues about about overcoming the ick factor about about talking in a healthy way about sex and sexuality how can we engage properly if we if we haven't done our own work to to get rid of the homophobia that the internalized homophobia, you know? Nathan, I'd also just like to ask you, maybe it's not worth dwelling on hypotheticals, but since my my coming to Idaho over a year ago, I've learned a lot about the Mormon Church, the Latter-day Saints Church. Mm-hmm. Um, some of which is from uh ex-Mormons and some of which is from People who grew up not Mormon and for lack of a uh, lack of a better word, I think feel a certain level of jadedness by being my you know I, for a minority by not being Mormon in the in some of these communities. So you can correct the the language that I use if something doesn't sound exactly accurate because I don't want to offend I don't want to offend people in the LDS church, but there is a certain structure within the the Mormon church where I know that there's a, like um, there's the prophet and I think he has, is it 12 around him that. So, so yeah, yeah, there's the, what they refer to as the first presidency, which is the president who is, who they consider a prophet. Then he has two counselors. That's the top mm. piece. And then the next level down is the quorum of the 12 apostles, which basically um, they're the highest uh, with the first presidency. They're the highest authority within the church. Got it. And so um, I guess to use as an example, uh, there's a pretty popular quote from the musical, The Book of Mormon, uh, (laughs) which a lot of people might be familiar with, uh, which is that, which uh, says, I believe that in 1978, God changed his mind about black people. You can be a Mormon or Mormon who just believes. And what that's referring to is that in 1978, when the Mormon church made this decision that, oh, yes, black people could serve in positions of authority within their church. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, that is quite a bit later than the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, you know, the practices that were adopted quickly thereafter by other denominations. Right. That said. I don't want to pretend that Presbyterians move fast because we definitely don't either. So I do want to put that disclaimer out there. But in the Mormon church, do you see a maybe a push or a movement for there to be a, um, a change regarding gay and queer folks being accepted within the Mormon church uh, on the horizon? You're right. Presbyterians don't move fast, but Mormons move even slower than we do. Um 
there have been let me back up to 1978 if you don't mind because i was around in 1978 and i actually remember this and i remember thinking i was at that point um still in high school and this was one of the things that actually started me questioning the church in general which is which is not a um not an easy thing to do when you've when you're raised in it but when they announced that that the revelation had come down there were a lot of people who saw that as the church succumbing to outside political pressure. They'd been under pressure for years to to prove that they weren't racist. And so it was a little bit, some of us thought that it was a bit too convenient that it happened um, literally before, just before the NWA, the NWACP was going to file a suit against them uh, for discrimination. Um, of course, that suit never happened. But um, so some of us felt that there was a little bit of a of a political bent to that particular revelation. I think, you know, in the intervening almost fifty years since. Or what? Now forty—not quite fifty, but you know, forty-five years since we've seen the same thing play back and forth with 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 queer folk within the LDS Church. Um, a few years back, first presidency or the or the president of the Mormon Church came out and said, "Children of queer folk cannot be baptized Mormon, cannot cannot participate in baptism." Uproar, 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 and rightly so, I might add. And then they reversed it a couple of years later. There is a there's something called the Utah Compromise, which basically is um, now let me let me explain a little bit. Mormons dominate the political landscape in Utah. Period. In the story, they dominate it here in Idaho too, but to a lesser extent. But in Utah, nothing gets done politically without the consent of the Mormon Church. Period. End of story. Um, so there was this, uh, there, there came this point in time a few years back in Utah and, and, and folks were really fighting hard for, um, it was an anti-discrimination bill. It would have added, it would have added sexual orientation to, um, to a hate crimes bill and, and, um, uh, it would have included us in anti-discrimination legislation. Uh, can't fire us for being gay. Can't deny us housing for being gay. You, the the basic um, the basic anti discrimination bill language. Church was opposed. Church was absolutely opposed because they felt that it was a slippery slope to uh, requiring churches to same gender marriages, for instance, or require churches to put um, queer folk into leadership when that's against their belief system. So they were, it, and that's a typical argument against anti-discrimination bills as well, you know, the slippery slope argument. So they came to this compromise, and it's called the Utah Compromise, where basically they carved out religious exemption, uh, they carved out religious exceptions uh, to this to this uh, legislation, and it passed. And it doesn't make everybody happy on either side, but 
my point in saying that is that, um, and in to answer your questions, it goes back and forth. You know, if the church feels that um, it's politically expedient to give, uh, to be more openly friendly and supportive of gay rights in the state of Utah or anywhere else, then they'll support it up to a point. If not, if they don't see any political value in it, they won't. And I get that you don't want to upset the Mormon church, but as a former Mormon and as somebody who works works quite a bit with gay men, particularly who have left and are and are struggling to reconcile sexuality with spirituality, who are in the process of leaving and and not and just and just having horrible struggle trying to figure out which way to go. You know, I feel like I am in a position that I I feel more comfortable perhaps than you, Simon, or you, Lee, to offer criticism. You know, um, there's a lot about the about the Mormon Church that I love, even to this day, and there's a lot that I wish would change, and it'll it'll take time, maybe. Yeah, and if we're not, and honestly, a lot of people who have opinions about the Mormon church just have no idea what the Mormon church is. And I think that, you know, and this is not, this is not, I always tend to bring real housewives of Salt Lake city. It's a gay thing. It really it is, is. Like part of gay that. culture, part of gay culture. <laughs> and I was going to bring this up anyway. I'm not ashamed of it because it's one of those shows that is in the mainstream and a lot of queer people watch it. A lot of people all over the world watch this. And it's one of the first times we've had a conversation about the Mormon church in not like a pop culture generated way. And for people out there, Heather Gay is a character. Well, she's not a character. She's a person on the show who wrote a book called Bad Mormon. Yes. And I will say for her to for this to be a reality show. And for this to be something that is kind of, you know, pop culture or whatever. And a lot of people in the church don't take this kind of stuff seriously. I do. But I read the book. And, and I do think that there is a lot more nuance. And there's a lot more. There's a lot of people in the Mormon church that have kind of a, I've gleaned something from this. And it really does mean something to me. But I can also leave other stuff too. And I think you know, seeing it kind of play out in kind of a, a reality show pop culture thing, it kind of has changed people's idea of what this is. And mm -hmm. I think that that's also to mention because it is a part of gay culture too. <laughs> and, and I do think it's helpful. People should go read it. Like I would love to have her on this podcast because she still has like a fate to her, but yes. it is kind of calling out these things that you are calling out too. Cause she's like, it is, there is a lot of homophobia. There is a lot of racism. There is a lot of things that, I, for me, other institutions do fall prey to it, too. We always seem to pick on these newer, new-ish kind of faith things that people don't understand when I'm like, we have the same stuff, too. And yeah. it's it's kind of one of those things that I think is really, this conversation is really good for us to have because we often look at 
the Mormon church is like, oh, that's different. That's just, but I'm like, we have the same issues and we do weird stuff too. You know, like it's just kind of one of those things. And so I just had to bring that up because I think it's really important. I really do. Thank you. I think it is too. And, you know, I find myself now, you know, two and a half years or over two years into this particular call in this particular community, um, appreciating individual members of the Mormon church so much more because they're the kindest, sweetest people you'll ever want to meet. It's the institution that I have an issue with. It's the, it's the, it's the fact that there's a 99 year old guy in Salt Lake city, basically telling 17 million people how to live their lives and without a clue as to what those lives are really like. And I'm preaching on Matthew 23, one through 12 Sunday. Okay. The legendary, the gospel reading, which is the one where Jesus blasts the Pharisees and the Sadducees telling the disciples that, Hey, what they're saying is right. Follow what they're saying, but don't follow what they're doing. Hmm. And the title of the sermon is, um, a religious fashion show because it talks because the, um, that's the how the message translation entitles that particular passage. And the point is, is that people that put themselves above other people who feel that their position a lot entitles them to take the best seat at the table or, or on and on and on, right, are not the people that are acting as servants of God. And my issue with the Mormon church, these lead, the latest financial scandals that have been hitting the last few months where billions and billions of dollars have been hidden away to avoid paying taxes on them and all of that stuff is an example of that type of this is money that every Mormon is required to tie 10% of their income. Okay. Mm. That's just been the deal. So that results in billions of dollars going in to the pockets of the church and um, how they've used that has been to elevate themselves, elevate their leaders to a place where I think if Jesus were around today, he'd be pointing that finger, you know, the finger that he's pointing in Matthew 23, he'd be pointing it at the leaders of the Mormon church. And not just the Mormon church. I will grant you that, right? But that's the context that I live in right at the moment. And those are the issues that I'm faced with when I'm dealing with folks who are struggling to stay in the Mormon church. Whether they're straight or gay, well, this is something that comes up. And so so it's, it's um, it's the hypocrisy, you know, that... That's the thing. So, yeah. And people don't realize that it is like an every, like, it is so ingrained in everyday life, right? Like, it is, it is like a way of living, which, you know, I really admire is that there is something there that is special in a way to where you integrate it into your everyday life. 
And my problem is that I don't do that like every day, even as somebody who might be in, quote, a leadership role in the church. It's that dedication, too, that is also, you know, something that I have always kind of wondered about, you know, because General Assembly is going to be happening in Salt Lake City. And I do think the more we learn about each other, you know, coming into it very open, I think is also a great kind of stance to take, because this has been a great conversation about what it meant to you, but what it means means to you now and and because we are such a different way of doing faith the presbyterian church and the mormon church we do have some similarities especially in the individuals who are a part of our traditions i think we often get the high up thing like you were saying but it is going to be interesting to see how you know collaborative we are in that moment and i think that it has been very very collaborative and i think it's been a great experience for the people who are planning it um to have that relationship because we are going into a space where we are the minority in the faith realm so that i i also couldn't fail to mention that everyone our general assembly is going to be in salt lake city and so i will tell you and i'm going to say this one more thing last time ga was in salt lake the General Assembly passed a resolution condemning the Mormon Church. It happened on the floor of the Assembly. This would have been in the right after reunion, so in the early nineties. And wow. um, so, my understanding is that caused a lot of pain on the other side, right? But um, my hope is that things have changed enough in the intervening thirty years that that won't happen again. Yeah. And maybe we'll be on Bravo. Maybe. And maybe they'll bring Heather Gay in as a speaker. (laughs) (laughs) And y'all can't see it, but Nathan knows exactly who I'm talking about. So there you go. (laughs) There you go, everyone. Well, Nathan, we are so grateful to you for being willing to come on the podcast and share your story with us. We hope that people learned a lot and we wish you the best in your ministry. And thanks again for being on the podcast. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate the time. Have a great day. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of A Matter of Fate. We want you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave the podcast a review and give us five stars. We love that. If you have any questions for us, send them to faithpodcast at pcusa.org and check out our website, com. and we will talk to you again next week.